Good morning. If you haven't already, please turn to John chapter 16, be in verses 16 through 33. John 16, 16 through 33. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us this morning. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again that we get to gather around your word and to hear your voice. You have plainly revealed yourself to us. You have given us the Holy Spirit. I ask, Father, that you would help me now, that I would speak clearly, that I would do well, and that where I am weak, you would show yourself to be strong, that you would bless your people this morning through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it's dark outside. It's been a long evening and an even longer three years with Jesus. Almost everything the disciples thought they knew about themselves, about the promised Messiah, about God himself, it has been challenged and flipped upside down. Their spiritual and their mental muscles are sore from all of the straining And yet, they still do not understand. As the evening goes on, they're becoming increasingly uneasy about Jesus' words. Jesus just told them that there is a traitor in their midst. And at one point, he's talking about how folks are going to be cut away from the vine and thrown away to wither. They're going to be gathered up and they're going to be burned. And then a moment ago, earlier in John 16, he just got done saying that the world is going to hate you and the world is going to kill you and the world is going to think they're doing an act of service to God while they do it. And then to make matters even worse, Jesus, the only ballast in the midst of all of this chaos, has told them he's leaving. Man. So all analogies, they break down at some point. But the conversation It's kind of like this. The disciples are like a child in a dark room, laying in their bed, and Jesus is trying to tell them all of this, and they're getting scared. They're getting confused. Why do you have to leave? Where are you going? I thought that you were going to stay with us, and there wasn't going to be more darkness anymore. They don't want Jesus to turn off the lights and to leave. But Jesus is like a patient parent, gets down on their level, looks in the eyes and he says, yeah, I know you're worried. And this is going to be hard, but I have to leave. And don't worry, I'm going to leave a nightlight on and I'm going to be just down the hall. You can ask me if you need anything, I'll I'll be right there. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to be there. It's going to be scary, but the sun is eventually going to come up. And when the sun comes up, I'm going to come back and you're going to see me again. And I'm going to be with you and everything will make sense. But for now... I just need you to trust me. I've got to go. I'm going to be back. And I want you to be ready for what's about to happen. This morning, we're parachuting back into the middle of this conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Our goal is to see what Jesus wanted the disciples to see, and that is this. In the world, there are great troubles. But in Christ, there are greater comforts. Once more, in the world... There are great troubles, but in Christ, there are greater comforts. 
Jesus starts by telling the disciples in verse 16, if you look there, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now the disciples, per usual, are not computing what he is saying. So they start murmuring to themselves. What does he mean in a little while he's going to leave? And, and how long is he going to be gone? And, and what is he even doing? The end of verse 18 puts it eloquently where John says, they say to themselves, we do not know what he is talking about. <laughs> a memoir by the disciples. <laughs> As Jesus looks out over his precious friends, they look worried. And he hears them murmuring among themselves. Peter's brows furrowed, his fingers are on his temple. He's thinking really hard about what Jesus is saying. They just have questions. So in typical Jesus fashion, he answers their question, but he does so indirectly. And he goes straight to the heart of the matter. And he tells them what they need to know, and that is this. Things are about to be really, really hard. Verse 20, look there. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So whatever Jesus means by leaving in a little while, the disciples can be sure that it's going to hurt. And of course, what Jesus means is that in a little while, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be abandoned. He's going to be murdered. He's going to be buried behind some rock out of their sight. Jesus will be dead and the disciples will be in tears. But the world, the enemies of God, it says, will be in jubilation, right? Jesus says, but the world will rejoice. That is the Pharisees, they're going to be at the dinner party that evening and they're going to be gloating that they just slaughtered this Messiah wannabe. And Judas, he's going to be counting his silver for what must be the 50th time. And the demons in hell, they're going to be toasting their chalices, boasting in their victory over the prince of God. Yes, we have killed God's son. We have crushed him. And now the world is free to cozy up in its darkness, to cozy up with their precious sins, like Gollum crouching in a corner with his precious one ring. And Jesus says, this will only last for a little while. He continues in verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Look at the analogy Jesus gives in verse 21. It's kind of like this, he says. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When Jesus leaves, it will be painful, but when he returns, it's going to be the sweetest joy the disciples could ever experience. Of course, we know that Jesus is now talking about his resurrection. The unimaginable joy of his resurrection is going to completely overshadow and overwhelm the pain of his death. Just like the joy of a newborn baby immediately erases the pain of childbirth. And so the disciples, 
they don't have to know all of the details just yet. And trust me, they do not know all of the details. What they need to know is that a moment of pain is coming. But it will only be for a moment. It will be taken away. And it will be replaced with a joy that will never be taken away. He just wants them to make sure that they get that. A good thing is about to happen after a really bad thing is about to happen. What is that joy that's about to come to them? Well, it's the joy of being with Jesus. That's what Jesus says. Look again at verse 22. Towards the end, he says, I will see you again. Meaning we're going to be together again. And the result, he continues, is your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you because I will never leave you. Brothers and sisters, can I just repeat the same promise to you this morning? You may have noticed that Jesus is not here right now. He has ascended into heaven. But in a little while, you will see him again. You are going to see Jesus again. And like the disciples, it can be a little bit fuzzy. You know, I don't know all the details of of his return and what all that's going to look like, but here's what we do know. We're going to see him again, and when we see him, all sorrow, all weeping, all lamenting will be replaced by a joy that can never be taken away, and our joy will be full. Now back to the disciples. Jesus' analogy goes one step further. Not only is he saying that there's going to be pain, and that he's going to come back, and that there's going to then be joy, But he wants the disciples to understand that they cannot have this never-to-be-taken-away joy without pain. It must come through pain. That's how childbirth works. You can't experience the joy of a new child without the pain of labor. Well, in the same way, the disciples cannot enjoy the benefits of the resurrection without the pain of Jesus' death. The paths to the highest joy often come through the deepest pain don't they? And in the moment, it feels like the pain's going to win. The pain's going to last forever. It'll, it'll, it'll never stop, and joy will never come. There's not going to be a new morning, but it always comes. Time and again, the dull embers of pain are completely overwhelmed by the bursting sun rays of joy. Jesus wants the disciples to know that there is a point to their pain. It's going somewhere. This great pain is going to lead to greater joys. So not only will Jesus come back to them in the resurrection, but he will have accomplished something. Good things are coming their way. So in the world there are great troubles, but in Christ there are greater comforts. For the rest of our time, we're going to look at three comforts from this text that are purchased with Jesus' death and resurrection. So that forms our three points for this morning. Point number one, the comfort of prayer. Point number two, the comfort of knowledge. And point number three, the comfort of victory. Point number one, the comfort of prayer. You may remember back in John 14, verse 28, Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. Notice, very similar language of, in a little while I'm going to be gone, 
In a little while, you're going to see me again. He continues, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. That's a bold statement to tell the disciples. In the midst of all this bad news, he says, I've got some really good news. I'm leaving you alone. I'm going to go. How is that good news that you're going to the Father, Jesus? Well, he tells them in chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that Helper, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So now, what Jesus does, is he picks up on one of the benefits of the Holy Spirit here in our text, in verse 23. Look there. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Oh, first things first. What does Jesus mean by in that day? What day is he talking about? Let's just pause, make sure we understand the timeline of events here. All right, so first, in a little while, Jesus is going to be crucified. Then, in a little while, Jesus is going to be resurrected from the dead. Then, after the resurrection, and before he goes back into heaven, he's going to spend 40 days with the disciples. He's just going to love on them. He's going to prep them for what's coming next. And then finally, Jesus will ascend up into heaven, but he's going to send down the Holy Spirit to indwell the disciples on the day of Pentecost. So remember Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire descend on the disciples. Peter proceeds to preach a fire sermon. As a result, people hear Peter in their own language. There's this miracle of tongues happening. 3,000 people get saved. It's the birth of the church. This incredible event all takes place because the Holy Spirit has come down on the disciples. So Jesus is saying, in that day, in the day of Pentecost, in the days following it, you won't ask me for anything like you are now. Why, why is this significant? Well, up to this point, the disciples have been glued to Jesus' hip. Right? If they needed anything, they said, Hey, Jesus, can, can you tell us what's going on here? And then Jesus would explain things to them that they cannot understand. Right? It's just it's in one ear, out the other. Or they'd say, Jesus, we have this need. And Jesus, who is in the flesh, he's only got 24 hours in a day, he's on a mission, will take time out of his busy mornings and go pray to the Father. And I'm sure that many of the hours of those prayers were filled with Jesus taking the requests of his disciples to the Father on their behalf. That's, that's just how things worked with Jesus. But the time for cloudy answers and praying to God in this very indirect way is all going to change in that day. And they can't fathom how good uh, this is. When the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples can talk directly to the Father through the Holy Spirit by praying in Jesus' name. That hits us. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Guys, that's incredible. Nobody has ever been able to do that before. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, until, until now, you and everyone else have asked nothing in my name. But when the Holy Spirit comes and 
cleanses the disciples and fills them with the right kinds of desires, they're going to be able to go right up to the Father and ask Him to do them good, and He will give them whatever they ask. He says, ask away. Ask and receive, and your joy will be full. Brothers and sisters, this is revolutionary. And I wonder if we take it for granted. Think about this with me. Talking to a perfectly holy God has always been done through a mediator. You can't just waltz up to God. You're a sinner. You're a worm before his perfect holiness. So there's always had a mediator. And in the Old Testament, it was a priesthood system. And this was, in many respects, a very clunky system. So instead of having to send text messages to God, the people in the Old Testament had to write him mail, you know, and just like, I wonder if he got my letter. I don't know. And and I wonder if I'm going to hear back from him. It's just clunky. Imagine having to sacrifice bulls and goats just to gain an audience with God. Imagine having to pray to God through the high priest. He can only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. What are the chances that he's going to fit your request into uh, while he's with God and say, oh, awesome, my buddy Will, this is what he wanted me to ask you. No, he wants to get in and he wants to get out. So you're not going to have a lot of success there. Imagine having to trudge through all of these ritualistic steps just to have a conversation with God. I mean, he's the king of the universe. And he's told the Israelites, you are my people and I am your God. But the lines of communication are virtually shut down because God's holy and perfect. And men are sinners. Think about it. What would it be like if you weren't able to talk to God freely? You can't just confess your sins. You just have to hold on to them. And you, just, you hope that he, that he somehow knows that you are repentant and, and that you regret your sin. You can't just lament and speak your mind. You don't have a friend who is always there ready to hear you cry out to him. You can't just open up in praise because of how much you rejoice and love creation. You can't petition him and ask him for help. Imagine that. What if your words really did bounce off of the ceiling and come back to you? For most of human history, there has been a chasm between the Father and man. And it has always been very, very difficult to get across it. In the Old Testament, there was something, but it was still very hard to get across. But praise God, it is not like that today. God has built a bridge between himself and between you. Our prayers are no longer mediated through the rituals of the Old Testament. Nor do we have to pray to Mother Mary and hope that she can go get Jesus to go say something to the Father. Nor do we have to pray to any other saints, for that matter. Nor do we have to make sure that we are clean enough and do all of the right things and all of the good works and prove ourselves before God before He will listen to us. In fact, we don't even have to repeat our words to Jesus so that He will take them and repeat them to the Father. Do you know that? Look at verse 26. He says, In that day, Again, the day of Pentecost and following. You will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Interesting. 
So when we pray, we're not telling Jesus what to tell God. This doesn't contradict the idea of the intercession of the Son on our behalf. Rather, it clarifies what the intercession of the Son actually means. So get this. It's not like Jesus is the teacher's pet, and we're a bunch of snot-nosed kids that the teacher can't stand. Praying isn't us whispering our request to Jesus and then saying, all right, you go talk to God for us, and we'll watch over here, we'll peek over the top of the desk and, and see how things go. No. Instead, it is because of Jesus' death and his resurrection and then the sending and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have been made clean before the Father. Because of that work to make us clean, we can now go directly before the throne of God and speak to him ourselves. We don't have to cower behind our desk. We don't have to watch on. We stand directly before the teacher. And Jesus is behind us with his, his hands on our shoulders saying, pray away, speak to him. All of this is captured in the phrase, praying in Jesus' name. It's a reminder that we can speak directly to the Father because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He is the bridge that has spanned the chasm. What this also means is that the Father delights to hear our requests and to answer them. I wonder if you know that. You are not despised like a snot-nosed kid. Jesus says you are beloved by the Father. Don't give in to the lie that God is inconvenienced by you or that you bother God when you speak to him or that God is too busy for you or that God is indifferent towards you. He did not send his son and crush him so that you could speak to him for him to ignore you He wants to hear from you. And he he made a way at such a great price to himself. That is precious. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. So the math is pretty easy. If you believe in Jesus and you love him, then he says, I love you too. And I hear your prayers and I delight to answer them. And remember, Jesus is explaining this because tribulation is coming for the disciples. And it's coming for us too. The doctrine of prayer is precious And it is an essential comfort when we live in a world that hates us and despises us. We are going to often feel like we are all alone, that nobody cares. You've had another losing battle with sin, another bout of depression, another reviling from the world. But you aren't alone. You have the ear of the Father. So let that be a reminder to you. Then in your moments of suffering, go to the Lord in prayer. 
Let it be the first thing that you do. And do it often. Pull up a chair in the Holy of Holies. Get comfortable before your Father and speak to Him. He never grows weary of the company of His beloved children. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Point number two, the comfort of knowledge. The comfort of knowledge. Jesus highlights another benefit of the Holy Spirit in verse 25. Would you look there? He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, or literally in veiled language. The hour is coming, again, that's the day of Pentecost, the day is following, when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, first things first, what kind of veiled language has Jesus been using and when? Well, I think Jesus has in mind all the various revelations that he's been making over the last three years, and maybe even especially what he's been saying to the disciples here in this farewell address. So his language has been veiled in three ways. First, Jesus often spoke in parables, indirect answers, allusions. So obviously in that sense, his language has been veiled. People just don't really know their Bibles, don't really know what he's talking about. The second way his language has been veiled is in the sense that people do not believe Jesus when he talks. (laughs) We saw this happen over and over again with the unbelieving Jews. Think back to John 10. He says this, So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Well, the Jews are confused, but it's not because Jesus isn't telling them plainly that he is who he says he is. I am the Messiah, but you don't believe. But it wasn't only the Pharisees and the crowds that struggled with unbelief. Listen to what Philip asked Jesus earlier. Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Philip had a belief problem. That's why he was confused. So in that sense, Jesus, his speech has been veiled because people don't believe him when he speaks. Thirdly, Jesus' speech is veiled in the sense that the disciples, they don't have the spiritual tools to comprehend what Jesus is saying. When Jesus talks, it's like giving a 50-pound dumbbell to a toddler. They just, they can't pick it up. In John 16, 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, why is that? Well, it's because they need to be given the Holy Spirit when he comes and dwells them, he will lead them into all truth. He will give them the power to pick up the dumbbell. But until then, when Jesus speaks to them, very often, it's like he's speaking in gibberish, this veiled language. Which brings us to this glorious benefit that comes from Jesus' leaving and coming back. And that is the Holy Spirit. He's going to unveil this veiled language. The cloudy is going to become crystal clear. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 25, The hour is coming when I will tell you plainly about the Father, and you will understand. Man, 
Again, we're like, yeah, sure, I know that. But friends, revelation about God is incredible. It is an act of love, amazing love, and one of the greatest privileges of your life. And I confess that I overlook it far too often. I wonder if you do the same. Consider that there have been billions of people who have lived on this earth without the testimony of Scripture, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, without a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Most of mankind has been enslaved to their sin, darkened in their understanding, deceived by their flesh, in bondage to the, to the devil, confused about their existence, miserable, purposeless, hopeless. But God, he spoke to Abraham. And there was this little flicker of light at the end of this long, dark tunnel. And that flicker grew, and it grew throughout the Old Testament. But even then, the people of God who got to receive this special revelation, they still barely understood who God was. They still couldn't really make things out. The living in darkness, the prophets, the ones who were the vessels of special revelation, even they were longing to see and understand more than they could see and understand in their day. But then, John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that a light has dawned. The light of the world, Christ, God in the flesh. And as we read through John, isn't it obvious that even though there's so much light, people still do not see it? It's still hazy. It's unclear. It's veiled. The disciples, they have the inside scoop. Jesus says, I don't speak to you in parables. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to explain this stuff to you. They still don't get it. <laughs> Can you show us who the Father is? Also, when are you going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem? Because I really hope I'm your second-hand man. Right? That's the kind of stuff on their mind. They're still living in darkness, living and struggling against their sin. They're going to abandon Jesus the moment that he dies. When he comes back from the dead, do you know what they're doing? Some of them, they're out there fishing. They have no idea who Jesus is. They don't see it. They don't grasp it. They're in the dark. Jesus even calls Peter Satan. Just doesn't see it. So for all their time with Jesus, they don't get it. But the disciples are on the precipice of one of the greatest lunges forward in Revelation history. And that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the helper who is going to come. In that day, everything changes. Just compare the disciples in the Gospels with the disciples in Acts. From ignorance about the Father, total ignorance about the Father, to full-length sermons about the Father, they couldn't stop explaining and talking about all the wonderful things they knew about God. From discussions about their greatness to discussions about His greatness. From abandoning Jesus in His moment of greatest need to counting it all joy to suffer for His sake. From bondage to their sin to freedom to live in righteousness. From ignorance about the Father and fear about what's going to happen next to an intimate relationship with the Father and excitement about the future. What in the world happened to these guys? Well, I'll tell you. 
Jesus sent down the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with God. And he began to tell them plainly about the Father. They came to know God, and it made all of the difference in their life. Friends, we live in the most illuminated age this world has ever known. We live in the age of the Spirit right now. As Paul tells believers, 1 Corinthians, he tells them that we can know the mind of the Lord because the Holy Spirit lives within us. The Holy Spirit, he searches the very depths of God. He knows everything about the Father. And now he lives in you so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God. The Holy Spirit is this pipeline where spiritual truths that have always been hidden are pumped directly into us. Man, isn't it good that God is so eager to plainly reveal himself to us? He wants you to know more and more about him. He's gone through such incredible lengths so that you can know him more deeply every day. And along with the illumination of the Spirit, we live in a time where we have the New Testament. We have the revelation of the apostles. They have shown a flashlight on mystery after mystery after mystery. Things which angels long to see, we see. Things which prophets long to grasp, we can grasp. And the entirety of these revelations are bound in a book or in a software at your fingertips that you can access virtually any time that you want. How glorious is that? And what an amazing comfort this is in times of trouble. Whatever happens, brothers and sisters, you can know the Father. And you can know him deeply, more deeply than anyone has ever been able to know the Father. And the more deeply you commit to knowing him by reading his word, by attending church and listening to sermons, and by spending time in meditation and prayer, the more you do that, the more peace you will have. The same transformation that overtook the disciples can be your transformation from fear and sorrow in the midst of suffering to joy and an unstoppable hope. The bigger your God is, the smaller your problems will become. So do you know him? That's the question. When troubles come, do you go and search Galatians or do you search Google? When trouble comes, do you turn to the New Testament or do you turn to the newest Netflix series and just hope to kind of drown it out? Do you run to the Father because you know Him and you want to know Him more deeply? And the more you see Him, you want to see Him crush your problems. If you're living in trouble and anxiety and pain, I have a prescription. Know the Father more deeply. Seek to know Him. And you'll have everything you need for today's troubles. But wait, there's more. <laughs> even though there is a glut of revelation available to us, and we are totally spoiled to have what we have today, there is a promise of more revelation to come. It just blows my mind. You think you know God now, and man, we can. 
He tells us plainly about himself. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There is so much more even to come. So let me paraphrase paraphrase Christ's words to disciples for us today. I know you still, still see many things dimly. Many things are veiled. But a day is coming in just a little while when I will speak even more plainly to you about the Father. In fact, you will see him face to face, plumbing the depths of his majesty forever, being filled up with his love forever, being made more and more into his image, for you will see him as he really is. So take comfort. We will know the Father even more deeply than we do now in just a little while. Point number three, the comfort of victory. The comfort of victory. So, Jesus has told his disciples that he's going to leave, but he's comforted them with the fact that they're going to be able to pray in a way that no one has ever been able to pray before. And he comforts them with the fact that I'm going to leave, but you're going to be able to know the Father more deeply than anyone has known the Father before. He's telling them, Incredible things. But the funny thing is, is that at this moment in time, there's no way the disciples understand what Jesus is really saying to them. And it's crazy because they think they do. (laughs) But the idea of the promised Messiah dying is crazy. Resurrecting to new life, even crazier. God, the Spirit, indwelling them, the craziest thing that they could ever imagine. So in verses 29 through 30, it's odd that the disciples managed to convince themselves, yeah, we're tracking, (laughs) right? So they say, we get it now. You came from the Father. You're going back to the Father. You know everything. We totally believe in you. They're fooling themselves. Their belief is as fickle as it has always been. So Jesus responds to them like he did to Peter a little bit earlier. You can just imagine him kind of scoffing in his voice. (laughs) Do you now believe? Really? Behold. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The disciples don't get it, and they're going to abandon Jesus. But here's what he wants them to know. In that day, when you abandon me, and it's coming, it's here, he says, I want you to know I'm not going to abandon you. Remember that. Remember that. I'm only going to leave you alone for three short days. And then you're going to see me burst back onto the scene in power like you have never seen before. So Jesus circles back around in verse 33. I have said these things to you, all these comforts we've just explained. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, who knows how the disciples interpreted these words. We could let our minds wander and our imaginations run wild. But I can tell you what they wouldn't have thought. They would not have thought that the world is about to be overcome by a dead Messiah who is going to come back from the grave. Not on their radar, but that's what's about to happen. Now, 
what does Jesus mean by overcoming the world? That's such a broad statement. It literally means he, he has subdued the world or he has victory over the world. Well, we're almost done, but I can think of five things that Jesus has victory over through his death and resurrection. These will be fast. First, victory over sin. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The wages of our sin is death. That God took a nail and he drove it right through our sin debt, right into Christ's own flesh, into the cross. And by his death, sin has been defeated. Secondly, victory over spiritual enemies. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Jesus himself partook of flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Simply saying, Satan is the father of this world, and by Jesus' death, the devil, all of his works are destroyed. For a little while, he operates on a short leash, but a day is coming when he will cast him into hell with the rest of all of his demons, totally defeated, utterly powerless over God's creation forever. He has victory over spiritual enemies. Thirdly, victory over sinful flesh. Romans 6. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, he died, we died, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He was raised to life, we're raised to life. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That is, the power of sin in the flesh has been brought to nothing because of the death and resurrection of the sinless God-man, Jesus Christ. Sin in the flesh has been defeated. Fourthly, victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body, that's us, this, must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. That's the next body. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal body puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has killed death by his death because the grave could not hold him. Fifthly, and lastly, victory over anything that is against us. Romans 8, 31 through 39, summarizes it all for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, that makes good sense. God's all-powerful. If he's for you, can you lose? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he didn't hold back on giving us his son, 
What is he going to hold back? So an all-powerful God is all for us, not holding anything back. What about this? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is going to say that you're guilty? There's one being in this entire universe, and outside of this universe, who can say that you are guilty, and that is God. Well, God justified you. Who is to condemn? If it's not God, who is it? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? He left for a little while, but in a little while he came back, and he is now at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us. His blood intercedes for us. We are totally pure and clean before the Father. What about this? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As long as this connection exists, and I'm innocent and justified before God, and he's going to give me everything, well, then who can separate me from this? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he has overcome, we have overcome. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Tell me, what enemy are you facing today that is bigger than God? What are you going to face that Christ has not already defeated? Well, I can't think of anything either. So the only question then is how do we get to deeply enjoy the benefits of such a glorious victory? My friends, it is simply by trusting in Jesus. If you repent of your sins and trust in him, then his victory becomes your victory. And every enemy this world has known will be defeated on your behalf. John explains himself best in 1 John. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins, you have victory. So be at peace. In the world, there will be all kinds of tribulation and trouble, but you have the victory in Christ, and one day you will rejoice in him forever. And it will only be in a little while. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you deeply and that we can pray to you and that we have the victory in Christ. Father, would you give us peace and would you give us hope as we look forward to the day of rejoicing in you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.